have made it to the prophet Habakkuk. We only have one more prophet before we enter into the post-Babylonian era. So only one more prophet after Habakkuk that's going to be talking about the coming Babylonian captivity <coughs> after that. We'll move on to other issues that face the nation. I actually have some at my chair, and I forgot it. <coughs> Thank you. I would have completely dried out before I thought about it. Thank you, Brother Quinnett. So the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, we're going to call the lesson this morning, Living by Faith. That's really, I think, the theme of Habakkuk. And um, thank you, Laura. The theme of Habakkuk, I kept changing the title the more I studied the book. I had other titles for it based on some of the verses. And then once I realized that uh, what the key verse was of the book, all of a sudden the entire book changed shape and um, just saw the whole thing a little bit differently. And it's amazing as we study God's word, the more we get into it, um, and then often in a book, find the key statement or the key verse, all of a sudden we start realizing, oh, this is what the book's about. And that key statement, we'll talk more about it in a minute, but it's in chapter 2 where the Lord tells Habakkuk, the just shall live by his faith. So I thought this was pretty funny. This follows up last week, Pastor Hubby talking about living by faith. So there's three words that are used in the first verse, and I think the bulk of our introduction needs to take up with that this morning, and that's how his introduction took up. Verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. So let's look at those three words. Number one, burden, Habakkuk, and then see. Um, the word burden, the Hebrew is Massah. It means a prophetic utterance. Um, sometimes it was very specific, usually indicated judgment. It was something heavy, as we talked about with, Hay with Nahum. He had a burden. It was something that was going to be heavy on the heart of God, heavy on the heart of the prophet. And so this is the book about a burden that Habakkuk saw. Secondly, the name Habakkuk means one who embraces. And if you study the book of Habakkuk, you find what he embraced. And usually the name of the prophet has a lot to do with his message. And he's going to choose to embrace the Lord. He's going to grab hold of the Lord in the midst of the trouble around him. We don't know much about Habakkuk. What we do know is that he was a prophet to Judah. Um, he says here in the first verse he was a prophet, and we know he was a prophet to the northern, to the southern kingdom of Judah, because the northern kingdom no longer existed. There was no nation of Israel by the time Habakkuk wrote. He was a poet because chapter three is um, poetry. It's specifically a song. He was a psalmist. Um, if you notice the way that it begins and ends, it says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon um, Shigianoth. And that word Shigianoth is a word that is a psalmist term that's used in the book of Psalms. And then it ends chapter three with to the chief musician on my stringed instruments. So in other words, this was a prayer that was intended to be sung um, at the temple in public worship. 
So we know he was a psalmist, and some believe that because of him writing a psalm and specifically addressing it to the chief musician, he was probably a Levite. And I can see no problem with that because the only two hymn writers I can think of um, that were not, well, I guess Moses was of the tribe of Levi, wasn't he? Um, uh, and David was of the tribe of Judah. But other than David, um, most of the Psalms were written by um, Levites. So that's what we know about him. What we know about his time, based upon the statements he makes in the book, we get the idea that he wrote after the fall of Nineveh, would have also probably been after the defeat of Egypt at Carchemish. Um, and this is where Nebuchadnezzar was leading the military. The Egyptians joined them on their the Egyptians way up to Carchemish to assist the um to assist the Assyrians on their way up, um, King Josiah tried to stop the king of Egypt. And that's when King Josiah got killed in battle. So king, uh, the, the Egyptian king um, took one of his sons, left him in charge, and he went up. Um, but by the time he got there to assist the Assyrians, he was too late, and Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the Assyrian army. So all this had happened, so um, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian nation is really beginning to pick up their um, pick up their steam power as they're beginning to take over the nations around them. As I mentioned, Josiah had been killed by this point. Jehoiakim would have been on the throne because we see the things he talked about. It would have fit the days of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. And of course, it was a time of national corruption, as we see in these verses. He talks about violence. He talks about judgment not being executed. He says the law is slack. Um, he talks about the wickedness. There's wrong judgment going out from the, their legal system. And so it was a time, a really terrible time for the nation. He would have prophesied around these years, 609 to 606, he would have been a contemporary with Jeremiah. Jeremiah would have been preaching at the same time. Um, Daniel would have been a young boy in Judah when, um, when Habakkuk was preaching. Nahum would have just finished preaching about Nineveh because it just got destroyed. And so the end also Zephaniah. Um, would have been preaching close to his time period, just before him. So all of these men would have been alive at the same time. Some of them preaching at the same time. It's just we would date the book of Habakkuk somewhere in this window right here, 609 to 606. Now, there's one more statement here, and I kept trying to let this go. I would study it some more and um, kept trying to let it go, but it does seem very significant. He makes a statement, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. It was something he saw. Now, I, I mention this because later in the book, he talks about how he was so disturbed by what he saw. And it's significant because it's the only minor prophet that it says he wrote about what he saw. Let's look at the way the other prophets were worded. 
Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah all began the word of the Lord or the words of the Lord. One of them said the word of the prophet. And then when it came to the first thing he said, thus saith the Lord. So the book was about what God had said, not what the prophet had seen. Um, Obadiah begins the vision of Obadiah. Um, Nahum begins the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision. But Habakkuk is unique in that it says the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And I think it is so significant because of the theme of the book. The theme is faith. And what are we told in 1 Corinthians? Let's look over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 7. Let's read this real quickly. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse number 7. I put the wrong text. I did say 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Okay, that, that's not the right verse. What it is supposed to be is we walk by faith and not by sight. Maybe that is Romans. But the Holy Spirit had Paul make this statement. We walk by faith. Now, ah, okay, thank you. Second Corinthians. We walk by faith and not by sight. So the prophet Habakkuk, it makes a statement at the very beginning. He wrote down what he saw. But then he has a choice. He's going to see some terrible things. So he has a choice. Am I going to act on what I see? Because what he saw would produce fear. Chapter 3, he makes that statement. Chapter 3 and verse number 16, when I heard my belly trembled, my lips quivered at my voice, uh, at the voice rottenness entered into my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. So what he has seen, what he has heard causes him to be disturbed. And for you and I, if we're walking by sight, what we see on the news, what we see in society, or I got a phone call yesterday, um, a friend had left her husband when, and I mean, a couple that a strong Christian couple, pastor's family, um, he yesterday, is, he found out his wife left when one of the church members called, and then he resigned the church. I mean, it was a whirlwind day at their house, and then we got the call that it was all falling apart. And when those things happen, we can walk by faith or we can walk by sight. I'm going to trust God in the midst of everything falling apart, or I'm going to be fearful when I see this. I'm going to be disheartened. I'm going to just say there's no point and just want to quit. I've been there before. Um, but if we're walking by faith, we choose, and no matter how bad it is, I'm going to still trust God. And that's what Habakkuk the prophet did. So that's why I think it's significant because he's introducing in the book this concept of walking by faith. And so it starts out at the very beginning. Okay, here's what the prophet saw. But then as the book plays out, what choice did he make? Did he walk by faith? Did he walk by faith? sight. So what he saw scared him, but he chose to walk in faith rather than fear. The key verse to the book would be Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Behold, 
His soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. I often think of the opposite of faith being doubt, right? I mean, that seems logical. You either have faith or you don't. You either have faith or you have doubt. But look at what God contrasted. This is God talking. This is not the prophet talking. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him. That is the opposite of faith, according to God to the prophet Habakkuk. The opposite of faith is pride. I'm either going to trust myself or I'm going to trust God. And it comes down to pride. I had never really thought about faith in that way before, but it's true. Anytime I have doubt, anytime something bad happens in my life and I start to doubt God, things get tight. Uh, Finances get tight. Um, There's trouble. There's decisions I've got to make and I don't know what to do. Um, When there's decisions I have to make, when there's times I have to trust God, I'm either going to get prideful and get angry at God because things aren't working out the way I want them to, or I humble myself and say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. And we find in the book, that's what the prophet Habakkuk does. He decides to put his faith in God to humble himself before the Lord. So let's look at this play out. Um, it's a really easy outline to the book of Habakkuk that you can follow by the chapters. Chapter number one, we find a conversation between Habakkuk and God. Before he starts laying out the vision that he saw, he, he, he shares this conversation. He begins, the prophet begins, oh Lord, how long shall I cry? So he starts with a question to God, and thou wilt not hear. You ever pray and you feel like God doesn't hear? There are things going on and you're like, God, you've got to get, our, got, get somebody's attention. I mean, I, I've sat in, I sat in a service one time and things got really weird. And um, I mean, it was supposed to be a very, a very good Baptist convention of Baptist pastors. And things were just getting weird. I mean, it wasn't Baptist there anymore. And um, I'm sitting there and I just started praying that the speakers would explode and God would get their attention, just scare somebody. So one of these old men of the faith would go, wait guys, we're doing something wrong here. Um, I mean, I wanted somebody to stick out their hand and God just strike somebody down so that everybody would repent, you know, and get right with God. Um, God didn't answer that prayer request. I mean, I wanted to see revival. It's going to break out. You know, the speakers bust. I don't know what in my mind I thought speakers busting was going to make people get right with God. I don't know. But that's what I could think of at the time in this huge convention center. If the speakers blew up, everybody would get right with God. Um, I wanted God to hear. I was seeing the carnality and just the corruption of that whole system that I was involved in, and it was really disturbing. When I got upset at God. How long? I've been crying out to you. I've been praying about this. And as a teenager, I was praying for years. I mean, it's pretty bad when a teenager's sitting in the pew going, something's not right here. So I'm going, God, how long? And so the prophet's asking God, how long are you going to let all this go on? He said, even cry out unto thee of violence. So now he starts listing all the things in his nation that he's been talking to God about. I've been crying out about violence and, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? 
for spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that rise, sorry, that raise up strife and contention. That sounds like our country the last couple of years. People raising up strife and contention and watching all of this violence. Verse 4, therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth, for the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. He said, the unrighteous, the wicked, they've prevailed. In other words, they're in leadership now, and because of that, wrong judgment goes forth. Huh, can we identify with that? Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days. So now God responds to him, I am going to work. We get so impatient sometimes, and we think because God's not doing something right now, right now, um, we think he's doing nothing. Anybody ever accused God of that? God, you just, you need to do something. Hurry up, hurry up. And God doesn't work on our timetable, praise the Lord, because we would all be greasy spots in the road, as my dad would say. Um, because God would very quick, if God dealt with us in anger, if he responded quickly like we often do to others, um, none of us would even exist today. But God is long-suffering and God is patient. But God tells him, I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. I'm fixing to tell you, but you're not going to believe what's going to really happen. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. So he goes on talking. He talks about their horses are swifter than leopards. And um, he, he paints a really scary picture of these Chaldeans, which by now news has gotten here that, you know, Nineveh has been destroyed, that um, the Chaldeans have won, the Babylonians, they have won at Carchemish. They've defeated the Assyrians. The Assyrian is no longer a threat to us. Now, um, the Babylonians are going to be a threat. And so God paints this picture to him of how terrible this nation is and how he's going to use them. They're going to come in. They're going to take over the land. And then, of course, now this causes a, a new problem for Habakkuk. So look down at verse, 20, verse 12. He said, art, not, art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? We shall not die. Now, we could look at this and say, I think he's arguing with God. I, I really don't think he's arguing with God here. I think he's taking God back to one of his promises. God had said he was making an everlasting covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And now he tells them, you're going to be destroyed. Your land is going to be destroyed. And he says, wait, 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 wait. no, God, you, you've made us a promise. We're not going to die. And that was true. That was true. It was not going to be a total extermination of the Jews, and it was not going to be permanent. Yep. So here he is, he's speaking up for the people. No, God, you made a promise. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. Now he acknowledges God has ordained these Chaldeans for judgment, the Babylonians. They're coming. 
You're going to use them. You have ordained them. And that's something we need to recognize when things go bad, is to recognize God didn't fall off the throne when Joe Biden became president of the United States. He wasn't surprised by that. And if some Catholic priests have enough guts to stand up and say the man needs to get right with God, I, I think us Baptists ought to do the same thing. He needs to get right with God. He needs to repent. That didn't surprise God. God didn't fall off the throne that day. Could we say that perhaps God has ordained them for judgment? God said, oh no, America deserves this. This is what you need. And almighty God, thou hast established them for correction. He said, God, you have set these people up in authority or they are coming to defeat us because you're going to correct us. You need to judge us. Thou art of purer eyes. But this causes, I mean, he's really disturbed by this. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he? Okay, God, our nation's bad, but the Chaldeans are far worse. How can you let them come and be the ones that judge us? How can you have them set up for our correction? You are a God, and here he brings in some good doctrine. He brings in some attributes of God. You're too holy to behold evil. And why is it that you would do this? How can you do this? He was just terribly disturbed by this. And now he's waiting for the answer of God. And if you go to chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, I will stand upon my watch and set me up the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me. So he has brought this before God. You're too holy to behold these wicked Chaldeans. They're devouring the people that, that, that's not near as bad as they are. And so he's waiting to see what God's going to answer and what I shall answer when I am reproved. So he sets up a tower. He sets up a watch to wait and see what God, how God is going to respond to him. And God begins to respond, and we have the vision in chapter 2. And look what he says. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. He may run. Run where? And that he can get out of dot. God says, okay, get ready. Ready, set, run. Okay, I'm going to write it down so that anybody who reads it knows it's time to run to the hills. Literally, run. Get out of town because this is what's about to happen. Verse 3, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. In other words, it's going to happen. You're going to find out this is not a lie. This is accurate here. Though it tarry, wait for it. Because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So why would he say that? If it tarry, it will not tarry. In other words, you may think it's not happening yet, and it's not going to happen, and it's taking too long, but it is going to happen, and it's going to happen quickly. And this is one reason why I think Habakkuk was writing during the time of this last king of Judah that we mentioned, um, because um, it's about to happen. Judgment is at the door. And now he begins, God begins to show him. 
Behold his soul, verse 4, which is lifted up. Notice the pride there. Which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man. Now, we studied this in the children's service a few weeks ago. You remember how, did, how did the, were the Babylonians finally taken down? Jeremiah the prophet had told exactly how it was going to happen. Anybody remember? They all got drunk, right? And the Medes and Persians came in under the city wall while they're all having a drunk party inside. And so I think it's interesting that Habakkuk also mentions the drunkenness of the nation. They transgress by wine. He is a proud man, neither keepeth at home. And so he's describing the nation of Babylon. He describes him as one who transgresses by wine. He is a proud man that doesn't keep at home. In other words, he's out on conquest. And that's what it was happening at this time. What's, if they had newspapers, the front page newspapers lately have been Nineveh has fallen. Then a few days later, it's going to be Carchemish has fallen and the Egyptians are running back home. Um, the Assyrians are gone. The, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, they didn't keep at home, at least at the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He was out on conquest trying to take over the world, basically. Who enlargeth his desire as hell and is as death and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations and heapeth unto him all people. So then he starts talking about how the nations that he has overtaken, they're going to raise up a parable against him. Woe to him. So he gives a number of woes here. Look at the first one. Woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. So there is a woe to the one, and specifically here to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians, that increaseth that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. Shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee, and awake that shall vex thee, and thou shalt be for booties unto them? Because thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee. So you've been out destroying other nations and all the people who are left, they're going to raise up at the end of Babylon and they're going to have a part in spoiling you because of men's blood and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. Here's the second woe, verse 9. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. What's he talking about here, this, this evil covetousness? He's wanting things that aren't his. How did Babylon grow and build their great empire? By taking the stuff from all the nations around them. They build up their wealth, not by trade, but by conquest and by taking things that weren't theirs from all the nations around them. And so a woe is called on them for this. Thou hast consulted shame to thy house by cutting off many people and hast sinned against thy soul. For the stone shall cry out of the wall and the beam out of the timber shall answer it. 
we have our third woe. Woe to him that buildeth a town with blood and establisheth a city by iniquity. Now, any of these woes could apply to anybody who does these things. But very specifically, he's talking about the Babylonian empire. There is a woe to them. There was a woe to them. Why? Because they built their town. They built the city of Babylon specifically on blood. And establish a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not that the Lord of hosts, that the people shall labor in the very fire, and the people shall weary themselves for very vanity? He's talking about their destruction. They're going to weary themselves at trying to save their stuff. When they started burning the city, he said, it's too late. Which I think it's interesting. Jeremiah said some similar things. Verse 14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we have a fourth woe. Verse 15, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Now here in this woe, he uses an analogy of a person who is, we would, we would say it with great sophistication today, he's an alcoholic. The Bible would call him a drunk. When a drunk comes and he starts trying to get others to drink as well. And that's what he's describing here. He's using this as an analogy. Woe to him that giveth his neighbor to drink. Something that Laura and I have observed over the years, that anytime we've had friends that drink, they cannot handle it that their non-drinking friends don't drink. It's just like something that bugs them. I, and I've seen it not even with Christians, but with lost people as well. Sometimes a person who drinks a lot, they just want somebody else to drink with them. They want everybody else to do it too. And we're aware of a situation, uh, a friend that um, used to be a good friend um, started drinking, started taking alcohol to friend, our other friends' houses. Would show up at the door. Hey, I just want you to taste it. Showed up to pregnant women's houses, trying to convince pregnant women to taste liquor. Well, today his wife has left him, his family's falling apart. Why? He's become a drunk. And what's, what was he trying to do? He was trying to bring others into his misery all along the way with him. Now, we can say this, these verses here aren't a woe specifically to a person who offers drink to somebody else, but yet that's what it says. And he's using it as an analogy that this is what, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what the nation of Babylon had done. They were trying to get their neighbors to join in. So either they were defeating them or they were trying to get them to take part with their drunkenness, which was literally going in and just trying to consume all the nations around them. And what, had, what did they do? I think it's interesting that when the Babylonians overtook um, um, Nineveh and when they defeated the Assyrians at Carchemish, the Medes went with them and helped them. Well, who was it that ended up destroying Babylon? It was the Medes and the Persians. 
So what's he talking about? He's basically saying here that the nation of Babylon was the one who was giving the Medes drink. They were trying to get them to take part in their drunkenness and their immorality. He said, you're doing it. He exposes it here. You're only trying to get others to take part in your drunkenness because you're up to sin. And he said here, very specifically, he said, you're just trying to expose their nakedness. Verse 16, thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. Now, I've, I've looked at the meaning of this word shameful spewing, and some say that this is like really bad words that are going to be spoken against them. But in the context of the verse, what happens to somebody after they get drunk? Does anybody know what follows the next day? A hangover and puking. And so I just think it's interesting. Shameful spewing um, is mentioned here. He's like, go ahead, get drunk, expose your own nakedness. What's going to happen after that is going to be shameful spewing. You're going to have a hangover. Well, what happened to Babylon? They get to the end and the very people they tried to get drunk, have get drunk with them shows up and they spew on them and the Medes join with the Persians in defeating them. It's a very vivid graphic illustration. And is one passage of scripture that makes me say, okay, I'm just, I want to stay away from alcohol. Why? When God's using it for illustrations like this, I say, okay, you know what? It, I, I'm just going to try to avoid that. Then he goes on 17, for the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee in the spoil of beasts, which made them afraid because of men's blood. Um, then he talks about their graven images they're dumb idols that they made for themselves. Look at verse 19. We have our final woe here. Woe unto him that saith to the wood. What wood? He's talking about their wooden idols. Awake. They're trying to get the attention of their idols to help them, to save them, to deliver them. To the dumb stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is laid over with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in the midst of it. He said, there's no life to these gods. They're just covered up with gold and silver. There's no breath in them. But I love any time the prophets give something really awful like that, and then they say, but you know something really good's about to follow. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Now, it didn't look like it to Habakkuk. I mean, the nation was overcome. They had a wicked ruler. Wickedness was coming out of the court system. But God said, oh, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is still in control. Yes, the nation has gone crazy. Yes, the Babylonians are coming. Yes, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians after they come but God is still in control. Now, this is going to bring so much comfort, so much encouragement to Habakkuk as we go to the third part of the book, if I can get the clicker to work, where we come to the song. If you could just forward that back there to the next slide. We have the prayer of Habakkuk, his song. Look at verse number two. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. 
O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. What a beautiful statement. Revive thy work in the midst of the years. Here we are with all this trouble, all of this hardship, all of the bad in our nation. He says, please revive thy work. In the midst of the years, make known. I've prayed this next part for my nation, as Habakkuk did then for his, in wrath, remember mercy. There have been times where I have prayed for America and I didn't know how to pray. And all I could say was, in wrath, Lord, remember mercy. Would you just have mercy? That has been something I've prayed during election times. Lord, in wrath, I know we don't deserve the good guy. But in wrath, would you please remember mercy? Then he goes on singing about some of these terrible things. Um, Look at verse number, well, verse number five. Well, now we got to go back to four. He said, and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And so he describes more of a vision here as he's singing this song. And there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth and beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Do you ever have that time where you're praying for something and, you know, praying for our nation and you want to see revival, right? That's what you want. It's the good that you want everybody singing. You want a Pollyanna movie. And all of a sudden, at the end of the movie, everybody's going to be walking around singing together and all happy. And America's going to be Happiesville again, right? Okay. Because at one point, it was Happiesville, we imagine. And it's going to be this great, wonderful place. And you're praying and you're asking God to do a work. You're asking him for mercy. You're asking for all these things. And what God starts showing you and what you start to see God do is not exactly what you were asking for. I mean, remember how he began. God, we're in trouble in our nation. It's a mess. Why aren't you doing something? Well, then God shows him, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, why are you going to do that? Because, I mean, you're using Chaldeans, and they're so much more wicked than we are. And now he's seen all that God's going to do to destroy them. But now he's looking at God, and he's seeing the power of God, the might of God. And to me, this sounds like he's describing what God's going to do in dealing with the world in the last days, moving mountains and everything. And I mean, all this sounds horrifying. I mean, we serve a great God, but it's kind of scary when you realize how great he is, how powerful he is. I mean, before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. I mean, that's a really scary description of God. Verse number seven, I saw the tents of Cushan and affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger? The anger of God, that is not my favorite attribute to talk about. Was the anger of God against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride upon the horses and thy chariots of salvation? The bow hath made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes. 
even thy word, Selah. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their habitations. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the shining of thy glittering spear. Thou didst march through the land in indignation. Thou didst thresh the heathen in anger. Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundations unto the neck, Selah. Thou didst strive, sorry, thou didst strike through with his staves the head of his villages. They came out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. Thou didst walk through the sea with thine horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, now he has heard and he has seen these vi this vision and he's seen how powerful God is and what God's going to do and that God is going to utterly destroy the wicked. And he's going to do that in order to save his people. But yet all of that was so fearful when I heard my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up into the people, he will invade them with his troops. And now he recognizes the reality of what is about to face his nation is about to face. Although the fig tree shall not blossom. The fig tree was a picture of Israel in the Old Testament, of the nation. But literally, they weren't going to be getting figs from their trees for a while. Neither shall fruit be in the vines. Again, a picture of the nation of Israel. But in reality, there was not going to be a grape harvest. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. So when he's talking about the wheat, the barley, they're not going to be bringing in the bread crops. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. They're about to lose their sheep and their goats, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. There aren't going to be any oxen. What's he talking about? The, these are the things their economy was based on. He says, the economy of our nation is about to crash. We are about to run out of, the food supply is about to disappear. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. I think about what ne uh, Nehemiah told the people, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I mean, he's looking at all of this and it's so scary. Yet, what does he say? Notice that word, yet. That's another word. I get excited when I read in the, old, in the minor prophets. They'll be talking about something terrible, and then they say, but, or they say, yet. You know it's about to get good. He said, All, everything's about to fall apart, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. This is his faith choice. He's going to walk by faith and not by sight. God told him, the proud, God's not pleased with that. 
but the just will walk by his faith. So he chooses to walk by faith and rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing is a decision. There are days we don't feel like rejoicing, but we have to choose that. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He has seen all this bad that was happening, but he realized the bad was happening so that God could save his people. So he saw what, how God was working. The Lord God is my strength. Isn't that interesting? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Here Habakkuk says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to joy in him. And then what's going to be the result? That's He's going to find his strength in the Lord. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. I looked this up this week. What are these hinds? Some say does, young deer. Then I was reading some about that the ancient Hebrews, they used the same word for even like mountain goats. It was the same word. So I, I found this picture, this mountain goat up on a cliff. And I, I realized this wasn't Israel, different landscape. But I think in our Western mindsets, it gives us the exact picture of what the prophet is talking about here. Everything around him is bleak. If he trips, he's falling and he's going to die. He's, on, he's in treacherous terrain. And nationally, that's where it, the nation of Judah was. It was dark. It was treacherous. It was scary. Those who didn't get taken away into Babylon, many of them were going to die. They're going to be left there to starve, to go and, and find what they could, and um, to even survive. But how does he end this song? He says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because he will make my feet like hinds feet. He's going to make my feet sure when the rocks are slippery. When everything is falling apart and when things get too steep in our nation, he says, God is going to make my feet steady. So what's the prophet Habakkuk saying? The rest of you can be scared and run, but I'm trusting. The rest of you can sit at home and moan and cry and weep and wail. And there was a place for that. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah, that's what he was doing. He wasn't writing hymns. He wasn't writing psalms. He was writing lamentations. He was setting the people up. It's time to sorrow. But Habakkuk said, no, I'm not settling there. I'm going to a higher plane. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to trust God in the midst of all this. I think there are such powerful messages in the book of Habakkuk for us. In the day in which we live, when things look so bleak, so dark, when so much in the news is so bad, and I'm even seeing more and more infighting with conservatives in our nation. And I look at it and go, you people are crazy. You have lost your mind. We need each other right now. And you're all fighting about dumb stuff. So you know what? I'm going to ignore them, and I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to higher ground. I'm staying out of that argument. So dumb to choose to, to fight there. I'm going up to a higher plane. I'm going to trust the Lord, even if it all falls apart. I'm going to rejoice in him. I'm going to joy in the God of my salvation, and he will give me strength. He's going to make my feet sure in troubled times. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the truths that you gave Habakkuk so many years ago. And Lord, we thank you for his response 
that even though things look dark, he was going to choose to trust you. He was going to choose to rejoice. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this week to find things in our lives that we can rejoice in. Those things that often we take so for granted. That Lord, we wouldn't look at what we don't have and what we're not going to have and what we're going to lose. But Lord, we would look at what you have given to us. Lord, we thank you for your eternal word that you've placed in our hands. Thank you for our loved ones around us. Lord, we thank you most of all for Calvary and giving us a Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to trust you, that, Lord, you would help us to lose our bad attitudes, our mournful attitudes, and we would trust you, that you would make our feet like Heinz feet. And when everything seems so slippery around us, Lord, that our feet would be sure, because they're built upon the foundation your word, and of your person. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to trust you more and rejoice in you more. Pray that you'd be with us in the services today. Bless Pastor Joe as he preaches this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.